What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to The Takeout. Quick health update. So, I'm doing just fine. Those of you who were listening last week, and there were lots and lots and lots of you, many first-time listeners and viewers, so thanks for that. I'm doing just fine with COVID-19. I'm in my 10th day of isolation per company policy, 10 days of isolation, tested negative twice on Sunday, tested negative twice on Monday. So this is May, no, this is June 1st, wait, May 31st. So that's when we're recording this. So thanks for your uh, texts. Thanks for your emails. Thanks for your direct messages on Twitter. I'm doing just great, but I'm still at home. And those of you with really eagle eyes might notice a little bit of stubble here. Yeah, when I'm in isolation for 10 days, things get a little mangy, okay? Last day of isolation, very happy that's true. So, we are doing this again from my home. Haven't been here for a while. Last week was the first time in many months. And we are talking to one of my dear friends and dearest colleagues at CBS, Jan Crawford. One of the great parts of this program, ladies and gentlemen, is that I can lean on my colleagues at CBS and ask them to do something that every reporter wants to do. What is that? Open up their notebook. Explain all the things that they know that they may not have time for in an individual television live shot or a television piece. And that's what we're going to do with Jan Crawford. Jan, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Major. Thanks for having me. And I can say you look great. So I'm glad to to see you're on the mend. Uh, you know, and back to like being as spicy and fussy as ever. <laughs> spicy and plucky. That's true. I think I said so Jan- fussy, but plucky too. <laughs> <laughs> so Jan, um, I want to start with a very, very big picture question about the beat you cover and the beat you know so well, the Supreme Court. Big picture, we'll get into the cases and everything that's roiling the country, but just what is the atmosphere around the court right now? It's uh, hard to say because it's basically on lockdown. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you've got that massive fence that was put around the court after uh, Politico published a a copy of a draft opinion that Justice Alito wrote back in February. And, um, you know, it's it's a it's pretty buttoned up place right now. Uh, I think the atmosphere and the mood inside the court uh, from my sources is it's incredibly tense. Uh, you know, you have this situation now, the first time ever in the court's history, that someone has actually leaked a draft of an opinion to the media uh, before the process was even finished and, and, and the printers and about to be released. It's never happened before. So this is a huge shock and betrayal to the court. 
uh, not only to the justices, the clerks, uh, their assistants, the Supreme Court personnel, uh, it has really rocked that Supreme Court. And of course, you saw massive protests, not only at the court, but across the country uh, by people very upset with this draft opinion, which would have overturned Roe versus Wade. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, yes, you have these protests and we can see the reaction to the draft opinion. Uh, you've got the, the, the fencing uh, up around the Supreme Court. Uh, you've got streets closed around the court again uh, because of protests and security issues, uh, potential violence at the justices. Inside that court is the leaker. So the court is not only dealing with security threats from outside the court, but within the Supreme Court is someone who has betrayed that institution. And at this point, they don't know who it is. There is an effort to find out, is there not? There's an active investigation underway. It's being run uh, by the, the marshal who oversees the Supreme Court police officers. They, they have their kind of own police force. Uh, and at this point, you know, they're keeping that very close to the vest. I mean, there's been uh, wide speculation and CNN reported this morning that the clerk's uh, we're going to be asked to sign affidavits. That's something that people outside the court um, have been urging the marshal to do, because obviously what law clerk uh, wants to sign a, a, a form uh, that might have a false statement on it? I mean, that's a, that's a criminal offense. So that, I think, is kind of the bare minimum investigative tool that many people thought of obviously would be basic in this kind of investigation. And this is kind of a basic question, Jan, but it may be on the minds of those in my audience. Uh, the marshal of the Supreme Court, why not an outside entity to conduct this investigation? Well, Major, I mean, believe me, there are some on the outside, um, other federal judges uh, who think that that's exactly what should have happened, that the FBI should have gotten involved. Uh, because remember, this is not only a leak at the Supreme Court, but there are judges on the appellate courts, uh, the federal district courts, uh, who are concerned that, you know, this could set a, a bad precedent for their law clerks. I mean, the, the court has to take a pretty hard line on this because you don't want to start having some clerk in the, you know, whatever based uh, San Francisco based federal appeals court, the New York based federal appeals court, Boston thinking, well, I'm going to leak to, you know, the Boston Globe or I'm going to leak to the New York Times. So, you know, it's really important to even some of those lower court judges that the court get this right. Now, the way to explain to me is that the court at this point has faith and confidence in the marshal to lead this investigation. And, um, you know, there's some reluctance to get another branch of government involved, you know, that would bring the executive branch into, you know, the judicial branch. And I, there is some, you know, um, logic to that, I think. So I think right who now, made, who, the who makes the, this is the way we're doing. Jen, who made that call? It's my understanding the, that that would be the chief justice. So it was essentially in his hands as to where to direct this That's investigation. Right. And he chose the in-house police force to use a colloquial term. Right. And the marshal is is very, uh, you know, highly qualified um, with deep experience. So no one is really questioning her ability to run an investigation and get to the bottom of it uh, at this point. The question is, what are they going to do if they find the leaker? I mean, some people think that we may never know. Uh, and will we ever know who the leaker is? So th those are all questions that right now uh, we don't have any answers to and the court doesn't. So a simple question, but I think it's important to lay it down. The draft majority leaked opinion has no legal weight, correct? Correct. That's correct. 
but it does have a weight in the larger public understanding or preliminary understanding of the court's thinking, does it not? A th- a thinking on, you know, at least uh, earlier this year when it appeared there were five justices who would have supported uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. The, the problem with a draft opinion, especially one that was dated in February, and as you know, Major, these decisions normally go through multiple rewrites and circulations, and we don't get the final version of the very big controversial cases until into June. So they change and justices can change their minds. So, you know, just because we have a draft, that's a snapshot of what the court was thinking then. We don't know what the court is thinking now. My sense is it's going to be the same. I don't have a sense right now that any of the justices have changed their minds. There's five still pretty solid votes would be, you know, my guess based on their posture and argument and the way that they've approached some of these issues in the past before they even joined the court. But I, I, I keep saying this, and I think it's something that is really important for us all to remember. It was in 1992, which is, what, is that 30 years ago now? 30 years ago, this month, in fact, yesterday, 30 years ago, that Justice Anthony Kennedy sent Harry Blackman a note and said there's been a development in this case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the last time the court was asked to overturn Roe, that I think you'll be happy with. So the end of May in 1992, the Supreme Court, everyone believed was going to overturn Roe with five votes. But at the very end of May, Justice Kennedy had a change of heart, sent a note to the author of Roe versus Wade, Harry Blackman, signaling he had had a change of heart. A month later, the Supreme Court refused to overturn Roe versus Wade. Justice Kennedy had changed his mind to join Justices O'Connor and Souter and put Roe on, as some people say, more solid ground than it even was before. So anything can happen in the Supreme Court. And Major, it's not a matter of, you know, horse trading or justices getting cold feet, you know, very often. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, you're an author, you do a lot of writing. Sometimes you think you've got a really good idea and you've got it figured out and you sit down to write it and it just doesn't write. You think you have a great lead. It just doesn't write. And that And you reassess. Yeah. Reassess. Jan, I'm going to stop you right there. We need to take a quick break. Back for segment two of The Takeout, our guest, Jan Crawford, more on the Supreme Court and all issues related when we come back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Jan Crawford is our special guest. Jan Crawford, as many of you know, is our Supreme Court and chief legal reporter, correspondent. Jan, you were saying that sometimes... Uh, for the justices, there's a fluidity to this process. You start to write something, you start to marshal your arguments, and you end up in a different place from where you thought you started. True? Oh, absolutely. It doesn't happen a lot, but it certainly happens, you know, at least once or twice every term. 
Uh, you don't see it often in some of the high profile cases. We saw John Roberts change his vote in Obamacare, for example, uh, where he was initially going to vote with conservatives to strike down President Obama's signature achievement. And at the end, he pulled back and, and provided the key vote to uphold it. So the question with this draft, which, again, unprecedented, explosive, shocking. I mean, I, you know, throw out all your adjectives you come up with that seem hyperbolic, but it's true in this case. Uh, is it the same draft now? Have any justices changed their minds? Have any justices peeled back? Have any of them said, I'll agree with this part, but not with this part? What about John Roberts? You know, with the, the writing, the suggesting now that we've got five justices in the majority on that opinion, Roberts with the liberals are somewhere in between. Is he going to have a change of heart and provide a sixth vote for that draft? There's a lot that we don't know, a lot that's happening at the court because when a justice circulates a draft opinion, it goes to all the justices. They read it, they think about it. Uh, if they agreed with it, they may have suggestions on strengthening one section or taking out one section. And then if you didn't agree with it and you're in dissent, that's when you start writing your dissent. And then that gets circulated. It's all a lot in the writing, not, you know, picking up the phone and arguing about paragraph four. So then the dissents get circulated. And sometimes a dissent can make a point that a justice might think, oh, wait a minute, let me rethink this part. And all of that is in the drafting process. We saw the initial draft. We don't know what the final version is going to look like. And, and Jan, uh, people often hear references made to the court meeting in conference. What is that? And how does it influence the process you just described? The conference is private. It's in this, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court is obviously this majestic building with, you know, wood paneling and marble. Uh, and it's, a, it's in a room just off the chambers of the Chief Justice. And they all sit around a big table. It's just the nine of them. No law clerks, no secretaries. And they cast their initial votes in cases. And so they'll do this a couple of times a week. And, you know, the way it works when they're kind of casting their votes is they go around this big table and the chief justice starts off the conversation, you know, on case A and then, you know, the first case, whatever. And he'll say, these are my thoughts about the case. And this is what I, how I see the law. And this is how I would decide the case. And then it goes at the court, everything is by order of seniority. So then it goes to the, the next justice and the next all the way down the line to the, to the junior justice. Um, and then, you know, the, whoever's in the majority, if the chief justice is in the majority, he'll assign the decision to another justice in the majority. And they'll go off and start writing their their opinions. So this uh, is sort of the conference is kind of a first read on where the court is. After this right. process, do they conference again or is that it? That's it for that case. Got it. And it's okay. in writing. It's in circulating the opinions. Uh, they can actually talk. And Justice Breyer, who, of course, uh, is leaving, he's already had his last day on the bench. Uh, you know, he, he liked to talk a lot. You know, sometimes he'd walk the halls and pop in and, you know, want to have a conversation. Some justices want to just do it in the writing. They all have their different styles on how they'll kind of hash out some of these legal concepts and, you know, kind of come to where they're going to be on an opinion. But justices can change their minds after the conference. Uh, and sometimes they do, you know, within a week or two. And they'll let, you know, whoever's in the majority know that they've had a change of heart. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, we want people to be thinking, is this the right answer? You know, these are big concepts and they're nine really smart people that have pretty different ideas, many of them on what the law looks like or how to interpret the law. So they do have that kind of give and take and that can cause justices to change their minds. 
And do the law clerks have their own side conversations and do those carry any weight or relevance? Different justices, again, use their law clerks differently. You know, some of them use them as a sounding board. Uh, Some justices, you know, they will expect their law clerks to kind of like write up a first draft or kind of get things going, get the ball rolling. Some justices, you know, kind of want to do it in shorthand. They they used to in the old days on like a legal pad. So the justices will have each of them. Typically, they have four law clerks each. Um, And so they'll you know, they're they're working there in a separate room off each of the justices chambers. So the court is a, a court of nine justices. But in many ways, it's like nine little law firms, like nine individual law firms, because each justice's chambers, you know, they have their office and they have their executive assistants. And then they have, you know, the offices where their law clerks are. And so the justices have a lot of interaction uh, with their own clerks. But then sure, the clerks and they'll they'll take other clerks out to lunch. That's a nice tradition. Uh, But the clerks also talk too. So if you're trying to get at how many people would have seen this draft opinion, Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah, I mean, let's say, you know, you've got four law clerks in each chamber, it's a, would have seen it, nine justices, they all have a couple, the justices all have a couple of executive assistants and assistants in chambers, uh, then it could have gone to uh, aides who would have helped deliver draft opinions. So, I mean, I'd say you're looking at, you know, potentially 60 to 70 people. And could it have been someone at a clerical level working at the word processing level? I, I, I don't think so. Okay. I would find that really hard to believe, uh, especially because this was like a first draft. So it didn't get through that whole process of, you know, getting ready to be released and going to the printer. But, you know, these are and I thought. So so, to, so just to stop you right there, this would be to, for lack of a better term, Jan, within the family. Right. This leak. Right. That's now, why there's a lot it's of so questions. disturbing. Right. Right. Because so like think about it. I mean, I, I think that it's really chilling and, and someone described it to me. This way the other day, like, you know, you've got all of the security threats and there have been some serious security threats uh, toward these justices, especially the five who are in the majority, uh, which is a tr- tremendous concern. But then you have there's a threat inside that building. So you have that fencing up to protect the court. Uh, but then you also have that that's keeping whoever is the leaker that's among them. And so that's why I said, I mean, it's obviously a really tense place right now. Plus, they've still got like 30 something opinions to hand out. I mean, they got to get some work done and they got another month to like churn out some of this work. So it's not a great, happy place. No. And Jen, you've brilliantly described the fluidity of this process, but I have to feel my gut just tells me and I want to rely on your expertise that for those five justices that were, according to this leaked draft majority opinion, on the side of this Alito-drafted opinion, seeing the public tumult and knowing that the leak document is out there, they would feel, I would believe, even more resistant than they were originally because they don't want to appear to have bowed to the leak and bowed to public pressure. And now, am I misreading that? No, I mean, I think that's a concern, right? You don't want it to look like, oh, someone's had a change of heart because, you know, threats of violence work and, you know, let's just do this again next year. But where are we? But the problem with that is what if somebody had already had a change of heart between February 10th when this draft was circulated to when it was leaked, what, you know, a few weeks ago? So we don't know what's happened in between the time that it was circulated until when it leaked, Um, even though the reporting is that the five justices were still on board. We don't know that that's true. My Mm -hmm. based on, and again, I mean, I predicted 
you know, we always have to do our end of year predictions on face. I mean, I predicted they were going to overturn Roe based on what we've seen at the arguments, what I know about their their approach in previous cases, even before they joined the Supreme Court, um, their approach to the law, their views on stare decisis. So, I mean, I, I fully expected the court to overturn Roe based on what we knew before. So I don't necessarily think that the draft was a surprise. I would be surprised if one of the five has a change of heart. I think the big question now is what's the chief justice going to do? And just to uh, pin this down so the audience has it vividly in its mind, even if Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, votes no, that's still 5-4 in favor of overturning Roe. Oh, that's right. I mean, Roberts would only be, you know, kind of going to join. It, it, the thinking is if Roberts cares about the court as an institution, which he says he does deeply, and that does affect some of his decisions, is it better for the court to have this, you know, kind of bombshell opinion that is is going to overturn a 50-year-old precedent uh, that, that has six votes. If he thinks that Roe was wrongly decided from the get-go, which he does, you know, Roberts is someone who doesn't believe that Roe versus Wade was correctly decided, but he just wasn't ready to overturn it right now. Understood. Jan Crawford is our guest this week. Obviously, we're talking about the Supreme Court, the future of Roe versus Wade. In particular, I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout coming up in just a couple of minutes. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Jan Crawford is our guest. Jan, give us our your official title just so we have it on the record. I, I like to think of myself as a reporter. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> that's all. CBS that's makes, all I, I have to be called a, a correspondent, a right. legal correspondent, Supreme Court correspondent. I'm not big on titles, Major. Neither am I. I just like to call myself <laughs> a reporter, too. So, yeah. Jan, uh, for the benefit of the audience, because one of the things we love to do on this show is break down the basics under which big stories stand. So the big story here is the future of Roe versus Wade. To help my audience, what Roe versus Wade was, because many in my audience are too young to remember. Oh, it's not. And, and also can't even conceive of the possibility that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe versus Wade because, you know, you're a 25 year old woman. You like what are you? They're never going to do that. Well, yes, they very well could do that and, and probably will do that. And by that, I mean, overturn. Uh, a decision, a nearly 50 year old decision that said the Constitution protected a woman's right to an abortion. That means that states cannot ban abortion uh, or even regulate abortion if it would put an undue burden on the woman's right to choose, which means that most state regulations. And of course, you see uh, you've seen some in recent years that the court has been willing uh, to allow, but the vast majority that the court has said, no, that that's, you can't do that. That's an undue burden. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade and says, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion, this is made up law, 
um, you know, this is created out of whole cloth and we're, we're going to overturn it because it was wrongly decided, as Justice Alito said in his draft from its inception, uh, then the states could do whatever they wanted. So you're going to have some states like New York and California, uh, you know, more of the, the, the liberal states, the blue states, having complete access to abortion. And then you're going to see states like my home state, Alabama, uh, or Mississippi, uh, some of those kind of, you know, deep red states who are going to try to ban it completely or will or Oklahoma it, or, will, or Oklahoma will ban it completely. It will be up so, to each state. And so if you live in Alabama and you decide that you have to have an abortion, you're going to have to go to another state that allows it. So on what basis, Jan, originally did the court decide or come to the opinion that the Constitution protected a right to an abortion. That was all guaranteed and the 14th Amendment and this essential like zone of privacy, a right of privacy that that is inherent in in all of us, right? Like that's kind of how the court saw it. And that's where a lot of their decisions uh, were grounded around that time. Other big rulings that came out of that court, including a right to contraception for married couples, a right to contraception uh, for couples who aren't married, a right to marriage. It's all kind of part of this zone of privacy uh, under the due process clause. And so this draft, and I think the one of the things that I'm really going to home in on when we get the opinion, and let's say that they do say Rose overturned, is the section that explains why this decision that the court issues does not affect those cases. I think that's what a lot of people are going to want to know. What does this mean about a right to gay marriage? Because they have some of that same foundation. Now, in the draft, Justice Alito said this does not affect uh, those rights because abortion is different. You know, you can have a right, a zone of privacy, but that stops where it starts affecting someone else and another life is some is someone else. So I will be really interested to see if that section of the opinion changes. Uh, If other justices say, look, Sam, you know, I can go along with this, but you got to you know, make that a lot more clear that gay marriage is not on the line. So those are some of the questions that you've seen raised since this draft has come out. And there were certain states in America previous to the Roe court decision that legalized abortion. California was one of them. You can look it up. Ronald Reagan signed a bill in California allowing for abortion in that state. So there was some process in, a, in the country the predated row in which state legislatures had come to a decision to allow for abortions. True. Yes. And that is why Roe has been very, one. Another reason why Roe has been so controversial, because you saw states at that time in the early seventies uh, starting to liberalize their laws on abortion. And instead of kind of letting that democratic process play out, the Supreme court jumped in and just froze it in its tracks And so instead of letting kind of people kind of, you know, come around to the issue uh, as you would in a more democratic process, the court jumped in and said, no, states, you cannot uh, ban this. You have to allow this. And And that was one of the criticisms of the court action from the right, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think that when you think about even the criticisms, not even initially, but, you know, a year ago. Uh, that remains something that is kind of at the forefront of people's minds, that it just froze the debate in its tracks. And that's something that the court's really sensitive to. Now, on the issue of gay marriage, you know, you had you had that was different because there was a growing acceptance 
mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, gay relationships. I mean, the court, one of the first major cases uh, that kind of paved the way for gay marriage is when the court, again, Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, struck down an anti-sodomy law in Texas. And, you know, people are like, what, did, we still have those on the books? What are you talking about? Like, you know, was, right. so there was more of this kind of groundswell of support. And as you see, uh, the gay marriage decision is, is um, supported by a vast majority of Americans, including Republicans. So, Jan, there'll be those in my audience who might say to themselves, wait a minute, if Roe was precedent, and I've watched some of these confirmation hearings, and I remember lots of justices who've appeared, nominated by Democrats and Republicans, always saying that they respect precedent. So if that's one of the things the court does, how could it overturn Roe? Yeah, they they respect precedent. I mean, and I think that's a huge red herring. I mean, I've seen, you know, you see people saying like, oh, you know, they lied in their hearings. I mean, no, they literally said the exact same thing that all the nominees say during these hearings. You know, you respect precedent. They're appellate court judges. They have to respect precedent because that's they're not deciding what the law is. They're deciding they're they're applying what the Supreme Court has said the law is. As a Supreme Court justice, that's a different posture. And when you look at those questions, when senators will say, well, if you're as a justice, how would you rule? They'll say, oh, you know, I, I can't answer that. You know, like I, that's something that might come before me. And, you know, Justice Ginsburg was the same in her hearings. So it's both sides. They're not, that, that's a total red herring. They mm-hmm. all respect precedent. They're all appellate court judges. They're all bound by Supreme Court precedent when they're sitting in that seat before they're confirmed to the Supreme Court. Once they're up on the court, they get to decide what the law is. And based on your experience, based on your reporting and your interaction with justices, uh, do you feel that those who are on the court now either internalize or intellectualize, and they're different things, the anguish in the country right now about what some in our country fear is coming? And if they do, does that should that influence the way they come down on what the law says or doesn't say? Well, I think that the justices would say you cannot be swayed by public opinion because it's your duty. Uh, to Even if it's anguished public yeah, it's opinion. It's your duty to interpret the Constitution and say what, you know, under however you're interpreting the Constitution, say what the law is. But I mean, look, if this decision stands and Roe is overturned, I mean, you're going to have at least three dissents uh, that that make that very point, you know, the, the 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 anguish and the upheaval and women's reliance on Roe. You're going to have Justice, you know, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer. I'm sure they're all will write separately, and you know, making the point that you're making that the courts, you know, uh, has gone way way too far with something that people relied on for 50 years. And if that's not stare decisis, what is? And for those who might ask themselves reasonably. Does the court have any pattern or history of reducing or retracting rights it has previously expanded? It's not typical, no. And that's because we have gone through a period where you had a great expansion of rights. You know, if you look back in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s, uh, there was a great expansion of rights. And that's continued to this day. We just talked about uh, the right to mm-hmm. gay marriage. So it is really unusual. And obviously, people are making the point that this is the first time that they've taken a right back. Um, but the conservatives, I think you're going to see, and you saw it in the draft, that this is never a right. They see it like this was never a right. You know, the court just made it up and said it was. 
So I don't think that's going to be persuasive to at least those five five conservative justices right now. That is the voice of Jan Crawford. I am so glad we're able to talk to her and talk to her at length. Segment four of The Takeout and our continuing conversation in just a couple of minutes. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I promised you we would allow Jan Crawford to do something I know she loves to do, open up her reporter's notebook. And I'm so grateful to her for the time and her expertise. So, Jan, uh, you talked a little bit right before we went to break about conservatives saying, you know, this is invented. Roe versus Wade is invented law, whole cloth, that kind of terminology. But the 14th Amendment isn't invented. So when they say invented, what do they mean? That is not what, you know, was ever intended uh, in the Constitution. And if it's not in in the Constitution, whether it's the words or what the, the founders had in mind, uh, then that's something that, you know, the states can regulate and do. And that is a very strong, in the thinking again, uh, from that approach of interpreting the Constitution, that conservative way is that that restrains judges. Otherwise, judges just impose their policy preferences. And it's so you've got to be restrained by the Constitution. If it's not there, then the states can regulate it or just amend the Constitution. Uh, so they see that as a way of restraining judges so that they're not just, you know, because they're unelected, right? They're once they're in the court, you're generally going to be there for life. So they their thinking is this should be closer to the people uh, who can decide. And if they don't like the legislators passing bans on abortion, then vote them out of office and vote some. And, and I think that's going to be really interesting, Major, to see mm-hmm. if that happens. What the political effect will be. And for those on the pro row side of the court, they would say it's not invented. Privacy rights are built into the Constitution. One of the things the Constitution was wary of was the government interfering, trampling on the rights of citizens. So it's not in there by name. Obviously, you can't find abortion in the Constitution. But there are other things that the, the previous Supreme Courts have protected that weren't labeled in the Constitution, and they would say it's part of a larger understanding and a evolving understanding, I think I would have this right, of what privacy in America actually means. Is that correct? True, absolutely. And you think about all the things that we have now that, you know, the framers of the Constitution could never have imagined. That's what judges do. You know, they have to apply the law to situations that have arisen, you know, 2022. So that, you know, that's a huge, and that's where you see the intellectual divide on how to interpret these, you know, various methods of constitutional interpretation. But, you know, I think Roe was, I mean, contentious in the beginning, it's been highly criticized. Obviously, Justice Ginsburg thought it was grounded in the wrong constitutional provisions. She thought it should have been based on equal protection and equality issues, which may have actually made it easier to defend. Um, So, you know, she would argue good outcome, bad law. Right. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, the bottom line is, I think the court is as close as they will ever be to overturning it. I mean, they came very close in 1992. They fell one vote short at the very last minute. And that's really important. I want to talk about 1992 for just a second, because you mentioned earlier 
that this undue burden was sort of made more plain in that Casey decision. Help the audience understand what that meant and how that is a hinge in this particular decision coming forward. So Roe versus Wade focused more on the trimesters. It, it, it really didn't have a lot of law in it. I mean, it is, and I, I think it's been rightly criticized as kind of sounding more like something you ask somebody at you know, medical school to help you come up with a scheme for when states can regulate abortion. So first trimester, second trimester, you know, there were different, basically the states couldn't do anything, uh, you know, until the, the uh, fetus could live outside the womb, which is 24 weeks or so. The court was ready to overturn that in 1992 in that case, Planned Parenthood, uh, Pennsylvania versus Casey. And Justice Kennedy had that change of heart and joined two other justices to come up with a new framework. So it didn't overturn Roe, although I think you could argue by all accounts it did, because it discarded the framework and came up with this new one that said regulations that impose an undue burden on a woman's right to choose pre-viability are unconstitutional. So, you know, it kind of focused then on this, quote, undue burden standard. And that's the framework that really we've been working under. And I think what was really interesting about the draft decision that Justice Alito wrote is that he actually criticizes Roe much more than he does Casey. And, you know, is that because there are Justice Kennedy clerks, former clerks who are now justices? You know, you could speculate about that as long as the day is long, but that's, it's, it's, his focus is more on Roe, although it would presumably overturn Casey as well. And not to overlook the obvious, what is the case before the court? You mean the, the specific case? It's a Mississippi yes. law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. So obviously that would be pre-viability and undue burden on a woman's right to get an abortion because, you know, you, you've taken out, you know, what, nine weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the specific law at issue. Can, can Mississippi ban abortions after 15 weeks? Now, it looked at argument like Roberts was trying to find some way to say, yes, Mississippi could have this 15 week ban, but we're still going to allow Roe. And, you know, maybe we can have a way where we can because most people polls suggest think 15 week ban is pretty reasonable. I mean, you're getting close to three and a half months then, you know, it's so, you know, that would have some more support uh, by the American people. And if Roe is overturned, Jan Crawford, would it be possible and constitutionally acceptable for a state like Oklahoma to pass a law, which it has, that says no abortion after the point of conception that doesn't have a week or number of weeks as a gradient at all. Yeah, well, it would. And the key to that is that it doesn't ban the morning after pill. So that's why they put even after you know, fertilization or conception, because it wouldn't have banned the morning after pill, right? Because you otherwise you could make the argument that even that would be, they could ban even that. So yeah, no, it would be, though you could ban abortion. Absolutely. And so in some states, so in some states, immediately after several states, I believe it's 14 or 15, have what are known as trigger laws. Whenever this case is handed down, and if Roe is overturned, those trigger laws would mean from that moment forward, Abortion could be either dramatically restricted or eliminated entirely. That's right, Major. And a lot of those laws have been on the books for a while. So it'll be interesting to see how the voters in some of those states react. Because that's not a current debate right now like we see in Oklahoma. I mean, they have a trigger law, too. But some of these states have had these laws for a while. They're just sitting there in case the court overturns Roe. And uh, you mentioned it, and we have about a minute. I want to just help my audience 
because you said it, I wanted to go over it one more time. The, the morning after pill, this is essentially something that you can take after if your birth control fails. Yeah. Yes. If your birth control fails before, you know, when you still are in that window, uh, you know, the next morning or the next day or so. Those are not implicated by anything by currently Oklahoma. before the court not by or by Oklahoma, by, specifically by the Oklahoma law. That's right. why that provision is in there. But, you know, Major, I mean, I don't know when we're going to get the decision. Time is ticking. I was just going to ask you that. It's, it's you know, we, we typically say the court will have it down by the end of June. Sometimes the court's gone into July based on the way they're, you know, holding things up right now up there. You know, that <laughs> they've got a lot of opinions to get out between now and the end of June. So this could actually go into early July. Uh, but I think at the very latest, it would be probably, uh, you know, at the latest early July. And real quickly, is your gun instinct that it will be the last opinion that this court issues? This decision? Yes. No, I could see oh. it being in the last week. I could, last week, I, 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 I actually don't think this will be the last decision because you, you're going to know that that's when it's coming down. I mean, that's the only time we know decisions are coming down. When the chief justice says, and tomorrow will be the last day of the term, and we will release the remaining decisions. So that's going to be, you know, you're going to have how many tens of thousands of people descending on the court. I don't think they're going to do that. I think they'll do it before the last day. Understood. That is the voice of Jan Crawford. Been a great pleasure to talk to you. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming, Paramount Plus, and listening on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. See you next week. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, Jan Crawford, who is our top CBS correspondent dealing with all matters legal, Supreme Court, and everything else is our guest. Uh, Jan, we've been talking a lot about the pending abortion case for obvious reasons. I just want to give you a minute or two. Anything else before the court this term that you're keeping a very close eye on as well? You know, I think that, you know, it would you can't understate the, this case, the Dobbs, that would overturn Roe versus Wade. So even in a you know term where you had four or five other landmark potential cases, this would overshadow anything. So that's, you know, this has the potential to be one of the most significant cases in the past four or five decades. So, right. you know, that's that that this is the term. But they do have several other cases that are hugely important, including a guns case from New York uh, that looks at whether or not people can, you know, have concealed carry. Uh, and what restrictions states can impose on that. I think that New York has a pretty restrictive law that you have to have a special need and show that before you can get one of these permits. The justices were really troubled about that at argument. So I could see the court basically ruling against this New York law, which has been on the books for 100 years, and, and giving people, you know, making it easier for people to have concealed carry if they go through a permitting process or not. We don't know what the parameters of that decision will go, are going to be. 
that case I thought was always interesting, but of course, major now with the tragedy in Texas and in Buffalo, mm-hmm. it has a tremendous, uh, you know, even more relevance and I think emotional impact and the narrative for the Supreme Court, which is this is a court that is going to allow more guns on the streets and, you know, restrict women's access to abortion. These are very contentious issues in our society. And the court right now is in the middle of two of them. And the next term, they've already agreed to hear arguments in a case that could end affirmative action in college admissions. So, you know, you've got in the span of less than a year, abortion, guns, and race. They also have religion this term. And that's whether or not the the case that has great facts, whether a football coach can take a knee at the end of the game and say a prayer and have some of the students around, the players around, is the court going to allow that? Yes, they're probably going to. So now you're going to have the court, you know, kind of allowing more prayer in in the public sphere. So the narrative of this court is going to be, it's taking a sharp turn to the right on some of the most contentious issues of our time. And then might fairly be labeled and, or maybe unfairly, I'll just ask you, Jan, the most conservative court since before the great depression. Oh, I think so. You know, I mean, look, We've been predicting and which would be almost 100 years. There's no secret to this. You know, presidents have tried to put justices on the court that were going to be conservative. I mean, President right. Nixon ran on the Warren court. You know, I mean, it's not. And they failed. You know, like you had seven justices nominated by Republican presidents the last time the court considered Roe versus Wade. And they literally they seven of them were Republican nominees and they refused to overturn it then. So there's been an effort and the justices have not been as conservative sometimes as the presidents thought that they were going to be. You know, we're at a point now, though, where Trump, President Trump, with his three appointees, uh, President George W. Bush, uh, President H. W. Bush. I mean, they very well may have succeeded in turning this court now to the right. With uh, lots of implications, you mentioned them. Obviously, abortion was the dominant part of our conversation, but gun rights, race, religion, religious rights, all of those things, voting and the voting rights, and the idea that the court is more politicized than we have historically thought of it is becoming a much bigger and broader conversation in our country. Jan Crawford, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for our Takeout Outtake Especial. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.